All right, so chapter 17, the book of Judges is a book that's been telling us about how um, Israel, after coming out in the wilderness and having the land divided among the tribes, <clears throat> having those early battles, how they eventually began to uh, live and conduct themselves. And it's not pretty. Um, there's there's some, a few bright spots, but there's nothing bright in what we're about to read tonight. Chapters 17 through 21, it is a dark, dark section of Scripture, and it's talking about the days of Israel um, during the times of the judges. And the theme that we see, and we'll see it again as we um, make our way through this chapter, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. God has given them the law. God has given them leaders. But they are a group of people that are living like uh, the nations around them. And we're going to see that they... Um, falls so far. <clears throat> so in these next accounts, as we see you know, how far they had fallen, um, what is surprising is that this, this, it's not in chronological order. So we've been following things, and we can say presumably in somewhat of a chronological order. But when you get to chapter 17 through 21, forget chronology. It's almost like an appendix, okay? So if you think about, we ended this, the chronological study of the judges was Samson. Now, as you go into chapter 17 and 18, you'll get one appendix. Um, and then in chapters 19 through uh, 21, you'll get a second appendix. And it's showing you the depravity. Actually, it's, it's, it's likely, it's probable that we're reading about things that took place maybe shortly after the death of Joshua. And so rather than this being something that's like generations um, away, it's, it's showing us. And there'll be a few um, examples of that. Um, and, you know, one of them is we're going to read of the grandsons of both Moses and Aaron and them conducting themselves, um, one in a positive way, one in a very negative way. And um, we're also going to see that, you know, the ark is at um, Bethel. So that puts it at an early state as well. So we're going to see the spiritual and moral depravity. Um, and even individuals, as we just mentioned, like the grandson of Moses, is going to be right at the forefront of this mess. And we're going to see them being uh, written about in a way that if you were to change a few names and locations, you would think you were reading about uh, Genesis chapter 19, and with the sin at Sodom and Gomorrah. That's, that's how bad it's going to get. And actually, um, it's written um, from a literary standpoint, um, it, it's intentionally written to sound like um, that account. So um, with that as an introduction, let's go ahead and just move into chapter 17. <clears throat> and we read, Now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me, I took it. And his mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. I, I mean, th this is like such a strange interaction, right? I mean, right off the bat, it's like, all right, he steals, his mom is using some kind of Hebrew voodoo and placing curses upon whoever took it. And, um, and he said, well, I took it. And she's like, well, then it's all okay. I bless you, son. And um, what stands out, we're going to see as we move through this, is I mean, he's more concerned about a curse or a blessing from his mom than he is a curse or a blessing from the law. And, um, and, and it just shows you how distant they were from the word of the Lord. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver, <coughs> and this is a fortune, to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated this silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Thus, he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith. Okay, so they were all for him to do this. But when it comes back to her, she only gives a portion back. I don't know if that was like punishment or that was just showing you again, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you do. And obviously, it wouldn't have been right for her to give any amount of money for idolatry. 
But um, it's just showing you how messed up the entire scene is. So he makes these images. Verse 5, the uh, man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod, some clothing, and household idols. And he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. Well, he's an Ephraimite. Ephraimites don't get to be priests unless you are doing whatever is right in your own eyes. Then you can make your own home-cooked religion. And that's exactly what goes on here. And you know, here's the thing we're going to see repeatedly. There is um, apostasy where people will turn away, and maybe let's say they will turn away from following Jesus Christ, and they will become um, an atheist or an agnostic, or they begin to follow, you know, Islam. And they have nothing to do with Christianity any longer. That, that is the way in which a lot of people do fall away. But a lot of people fall away by saying they're still a Christian and doing whatever they want. And what we're going to see happening here is that they're not going to jettison, you know, the name Yahweh. They're going to keep using the name Yahweh, but they're going to do whatever they want. And so we're going to see a, uh, a syncretism of their own ideas and ideas they see happening around them and they're going to blend them together with the few pieces that they like they want to keep the name Yahweh because hey after all we are Jewish and we're in the land so we got to worship Yahweh but we'll just do it however we want to that really is a pretty good descriptor of what we're going to read about here and so we read in verse um, six in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes so he stills he lies he makes an idol he makes an ephod he points his son as a priest um, uh, he had religious ambitions but they were not biblical they were not based upon the knowledge of scripture and so um, if you just move forward to the end of verse 13 just skip ahead it says then Micah said now I know that the Lord but notice the word Lord it's all what it's all capitals and when you find that you have all capitals for the word Lord, this is telling you that this is Yahweh. This is Jehovah. You may find other places where you would find a capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, and that's just Adonai, as in like master or something of that you know, uh, uh, nature. But when you find all capitals, so Yahweh. So he's done this whole nonsense and we're going to even read more of what he does. But, but he's still calling upon the name of, of God. So it's just a blending and a, uh, a mess. You know, in the comments that I've just made, um, there are many people in our day, and I would say even people inside the church, sadly, that would say, what's the problem here? What's the problem? What is the problem with what he's done? What is a pro what's the problem with doing whatever is right in your own eyes? I mean, shouldn't I be able to do whatever I want? I mean, this is meant, verse 6, is meant to be like this like resounding rebuke and, uh, of the nation. And yet many people in our day would hear this and say, yeah, well, what's the problem? I mean, shouldn't I be able to do whatever I want to do? Um, I shouldn't, and, and, and there are three things that we see that are so common, um, you know, philosophies that are common in our day are thoughts of, of how to approach God and live life. And for many, is, is religious relativism. And religious relativism mean, is this idea that all religions are equal, and so you can pick whichever one you want. That's why you can find people that have the coexist bumper sticker. I always have this thought of ramming their car, but I've never done it, never will, but, but I, I have a feeling I'm not the only one to just, just like, well, here's my new religion. I run into, no. So, you know, this is, but you see that, and they have all these, you know, uh, religious symbols of, of different religions, and they are one who believes in re religious relativism. And, and yet, you'll never find a Muslim that would be happy to have all of those things on the back of their car, 
right? You're not going to find a Christian that's happy because we don't believe in religious relativism. We believe that the revelation that we have in the Word of God is unable to be changed. Uh, the Muslim would, would argue that, you know, the writings of the Quran and their prophets cannot be changed and it cannot be mixed with, with anything other. And, I mean, they take this to some incredible lengths uh, to make certain that there is not this, this blending that takes place. But those who hold to religious relativism don't believe in religion. So they don't care that you would say that they're all equal. Because they have nothing in the game. There's no, there's no dog in the fight for them. Because they believe that all religions are man-made and they are pressed down by man to other people. And they will look at all of the evil that religion has done. And there is uh, encyclopedia after encyclopedia you can read about the trouble that religion has done. So they look at this and they say, hey, you know, they're all equal. Do whatever you want. So who cares if Micah takes a little bit of this, he takes a little bit of that. That's not our problem. That's kind of like, that, that's what I've done. I've chosen a few little things from here and there, and I've, I've come up with my own ideas. Another uh, philosophy that's very popular in our, our, day, our, our day is, to, is that you know, tolerance is the greatest virtue. And so tolerance is not your granddad's definition of tolerance, Okay. Your, your, your granddad's definition of tolerance is, you know, we may disagree, but we will agree to not do harm to each other. We will tolerate each other. But that's not what tolerance means today. Tolerance today means um, any, specifically Christians um, or those who hold to a, a Judeo-Christian ethic, these individuals must not just tolerate my liberal and immoral way of, of living, they, they should not just tolerate it, but they must actually celebrate it. And they must come to the place where that they will rejoice in what I'm doing to the degree that I rejoice in it. And anything short of that is intolerant or full of bigotry or racism or hatred or whatever you know uh, verbal bomb they want to wire into that. And so... This is why this idea, well, you know, they just, well, they just want us to tolerate them. No, no, they don't. Not in the sense of how maybe you think of the word tolerance. Are you prepared to celebrate and embrace it even as your own? Because if you're not willing to do that, then you are intolerant. Um, the other one is that there's no absolutes, which, of course, that kind of ties back into re religious relativism as well. And so, if there's no absolutes, why would you make a big deal about making certain that, you know, the doctrine of the Bible is being followed and being obeyed because this is just, you know, it's not for certain anyways. And, um, of course, what I always love to point out about those who say there are no absolutes is that they are absolutely sure that is true. <laughs> so, but the, so, you have these three ideas of religious relativism, Tolerance being the greatest virtue and no absolutes. So if you read this story, this account, and you are coming from one of these three perspectives, you don't see a problem with this story at all. Actually, it seems really beautiful. You know, what does that say about our day? And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We, we're living that out in the day in which we live. So... This is Micah, and, but there's more. There's more um, to this story. Verse 7. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah. He was a Levite and was staying there. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah <coughs> to stay wherever he could find a place. So, well, why are the Levites just traveling around and wandering around? Why are not, they not being taken care of? And why are they not serving in the temple? Some, of course, the sons of Aaron would serve as priests, but the, the other Levites would serve in many other ways in the temple without being a priest. But you know, well, why is he just wandering around? It's a little bit of an indication that don't really need him. Um, might be reading into that just a little bit, but I, I don't think it's far off. <coughs> um, so then he came to, middle of verse 8, to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? So he said, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am on my way to find a place to stay. 
Micah said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. So the Levite said, You got your guy. I'm hired. Then the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord or Yahweh will be good to me since I've got a Levite. I've got a Levite. Well, what we're going to find out about this Levite is that he's not a son of Aaron, so he really shouldn't be functioning as a priest anyways. But when you're making up your own religion, who cares about the details, right? So, but, but, but you can see this superstitious kind of religion that he has. Oh, no, mom said a curse. Okay, I took your money. Oh, I bless you. Oh, that's good now. Oh, I've got a Levite. Even better. Certainly God's going to bless me. No, he's not going to bless you. No, he's not going to bless you. What he's looking for is obedience. He's looking for you to follow him, not to um, have a, a proximity to the, to the things of God. As long as I'm around religious-type things, and a Levite's kind of a religious-type thing, so if I'm around that, I've got the ephod, i got this going, I think it's all going to be good. And that is not the way the Lord has called us to follow him. It's very sad that this Levite um, is um, content to be a hireling. And to, um, you know, whoever is the highest bidder or whoever is willing to offer him a meal ticket, I'll go and work for you. But what about the things the Lord had called you to? What about the job description that he had given you in the law? Numbers chapter 3, verses 9 through 12 says, And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are given entirely. And, and this guy would be a Levite given to Aaron and the priestly line um, from among the children of Israel. So... You shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall attend to their priesthood. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I myself have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the children of Israel. Therefore the Levites shall be mine. Not Micah's. There should be the Lord's. And they are ser should be serving um, the sons of Aaron as they uh, oversee the work of the, the temple. In John chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, I think Jesus gives us a description of who Micah is. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep and am known by my own. But Micah was just a hireling. He was just doing a job. And we're going to see that he's going to be quick to leave that job when another offer, a pretty, you know, a coercive offer comes to him. He's still going to say, all right, I'll, I'll move on. I will go to the next thing. And so, um, you know, the Lord does not want um, the shepherds that tend to his flock to be hirelings, people that are willing to do something just for their own benefit. They're doing it for the benefit of the flock of God. And that is something that is, is lost. So the picture is this. You have just the everyday guy creating his own religion. They kind of have a Hebrew voodoo kind of a mentality going on. And those that are st supposed to be set apart to tend to the well-being of the nation spiritually they're willing to be bought and paid for. Chapter 18. And here we're going to see, so um, our first point is it seemed right to worship on their own terms. So everything everyone did was right in their own eyes. So the first point here in chapter 17 is that they were, um, you know, it seemed right to worship on their own terms and they did it. Now here we're going to see it seemed right to choose their own inheritance. And we're going to see some of the same problems and uh, this young Levite is still, and Micah is still going to be a part of the story, uh, but we're going to see another element. <clears throat> so it seemed right to choose their own inheritance. <clears throat> and we're going to talk about the tribe of Dan here. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites were seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in, for until that day their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. That is not to say it was not given to them. It was given to them, and they were even given more land, but a 
it was a small portion of them, and so there's going to be a breakaway group that goes to try and um, find another inheritance. So they don't like what God's given to them, and they're going to, to move on to greener pastures, so to speak. So the children of Dan sent five men of their family from the territory, from their territory, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtael, to spy out the land and search it. They said to them, go search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. While they were there at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So this guy says something like, "Who? Is, I know that voice. I know who that is. And they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? What do you have here? And he said to them, Thus and so Micah did for me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. They said to him, Oh, well, please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we will go will be prosperous. So they're not even phased by the fact that a, a, another place of worship has been established with all these kinds of you know, um, idols in place. They just say, well, find out how it's going to go for us. So he goes away, comes back, he says, listen, it's, it's going to go um, well for you. So the five men departed, went to Laish. They saw the people <coughs> who were there, how they dwell safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. There were no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians and they had no ties with anyone. The spies came back uh, to their brethren, Zorah and Eshtel, and their brethren said to them, what is your report? And after they hear it, they said, well, let's go get, get it. So they, they um, head up in that direction, and they're going to go, and they're going to uh, overtake them, and they're going to displace these people. And so Laash is gonna, going to become a home for a good portion of uh, these Danites. Now, remember... Uh, Samson was of this tribe, and he was down by Gaza, so he was kind of in that area that had been given to them. So there's, you're going to have Dan living in two different places. <clears throat> um, so let's, let's pick up at verse, um, let's see, verse 14. Uh, then the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, Do you know? that there is in these houses an ephod, household idols, <clears throat> a carved image, and a molded image. Now therefore consider what you should do. So they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. The 600 men armed with their weapons of war, who were of the children of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men had gone out to spy out the land, went up, entering in, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household items, all this stuff, and um, took Michael with them. Didn't give him very much uh, chance. Well, I mean, the Levite with them. Well, Micah finds this out, verse 19, he comes and says, what have you done? And they're like, shut up, put your hand over your mouth, because if you keep on talking, you're going to make some of the worst guys in our group mad, and that's not going to be good. So he just, he turned away. So that which began as one man's religious pursuit and creating his own religious, um, uh, own religion is now going to infect an entire tribe. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. You can almost hear somebody of our day saying, well, Micah's free to do whatever he wants. Who's he hurting? Well, what we're going to find out is he's going to hurt a whole tribe. He's hurt his own family. He's hurt himself, but he's going to hurt a whole tribe. And, um, and, and, and this is going to go on for generations, and we'll see that in, in just a moment. So Dan is not happy with the inheritance, um, what God has provided. So they're like, we need to find another place. This is too difficult. The enemy's too tough. We can't take this place. And yet, all the other tribes drove out the inhabitants. All the other tribes were successful. This is not a bad tribal allotment. This is a bad tribe. This is a group of people that are unwilling to 
lean into the Lord and rest upon him and do what he said and go displace these people. Um, And so they are discontented with what they have. And I think for us, there's some, some thinking of a couple of, an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage that speaks of contentment that is a good application for our own life. I think of David who said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. I'm content. I'm content with what the Lord has given to me. I've gone into the pasture that the Lord has laid out for me, and I, 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 I'm happy with it. I'm happy with whatever God has given to me. And, you know, if you or I get in a place where it's like, I've got to get this, and we begin to get all amped up, and we get anxious, and we get, you know, we begin to fret because i got to have all this stuff. Do you have to have all that stuff? Do I really need to have all that stuff? I need to have it when the Lord says I need to have it. But just because I've imagined in my own mind or I've looked all around me or I've come to this belief that I have to have it doesn't mean I have to have it. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why? Because I trust that my shepherd is going to give me everything that I need. And whatever you have tonight is what this shepherd wants you to have. The only exception to that maybe is if you are living in sin and God has shut up the heavens from bringing rain down upon your life to bless you. In that case, it's a short run to the throne room of grace to repent and receive grace and mercy and help in your time of need. But David was like, I find contentment in the Lord. Not these Danites. They didn't find contentment in what God had given to them. Paul said, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He said, I, you know, I've, I've found contentment, whether I'm in jail or out of jail. Those were the two common states that he lived in, right? Either in jail or out of jail. He says, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. If I'm suffering, I have learned to be content. And it is a class that you get enrolled in. You're like, well, I don't want to take that class. It doesn't matter. It's just like if you become a Christian, you take this class. You know, some, some universities, when you go to them, everybody's got to take this class because these are, well, everybody gets enrolled in this class. And so the best thing to do is to learn the contentment because if you fail the class, well, you know what happens when you fail a class. What do you have to do? You got to take it again. Yeah, you're going to take it again. So we learn to find contentment. Well, how can I have, I'd have contentment if I had these things? Mm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You find contentment not in the state that you are um, in and the circumstances and the things that are coming in or the things that you want to go out. You find contentment in the fact that God is one that's drawn up your, 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 uh, your boundaries. This is what you're going to have. And I think some, some believers um, can become very discontent in what the Lord has provided for them. So let's kind of take a look at a map here for a second. We're going to look at this map a couple of times. <coughs> and um, I won't say, well, that's kind of hard to see. Or my eyes just getting that bad. But um, I, I, I've got a point. So here is, right over here, that's the tribal allotment for Dan. And where they go to is way up here. So they're not like just moving next door. They're going from um, the coast and they're going up into the central part of Israel, up into the north. And so um, that is the place. And, and it's this area right here where they kind of run into Micah and his uh, uh, priest for hire. And um, that's there. We'll, we'll come back to that map and I'll show you some other things. But So God gave each tribe an inheritance and Dan does not go into it. Now, when they come to uh, Micah's house, they end up falling, falling into the same trap. They decide, hey, we'll set up our own religion. We're going to be up here in the mountains. We're kind of doing our own thing anyway. I mean, God gave us this land. Hate it. Don't want it. We're going to go find what we want anyway. So I, we might as well start our own religion. And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, the hireling mentality. Uh, the priest is happy to move right along um, to the next. And they, they say, listen. You know, you can stay here and be a priest for one man, or you can come and be a priest for a lot of people. You're going to get more recognition if you go for the more people. He's like, oh, that's a good point. I think I'll go with you guys. Besides, you have sharp weapons, and I don't want to die. So he goes along with them. No protest whatsoever. <clears throat> so verses 27 to 31 of chapter 18, uh, the Danites settle in Laish. They rename it to be Dan. Um, and so some of you um, have gone over to Israel and you've gone up to um, 
tell Dan, um, the runes of Dan, um, that's actually Laish. Um, so um, that's that location. That's so when you go to Tel Dan today and you look at the archaeological discoveries, which is very, it's a very cool place. I love going there. It's beautiful. I mean, they did choose a nice place, but it's not what the Lord had chosen for them. Um, but you can find um, some of the same idolatry, uh, sites of idolatry uh, and, uh, where they worshipped. And um, there's even a gate that you can see that um, uh, the gate predates this back to the days of Abraham. And um, a gate that Abraham, that's been pre- that they found that no doubt Abraham would have walked through. I mean, it's a very cool place to go to, but it's, it's a, a huge distance away. Um, so there's a couple of verses here at the end. So let's um, look at verse 30 and 31. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh. So who, has a, who has an NLT, a New Living Translation, or maybe NIV? Who has that translation? It doesn't say Manasseh, does it? It says, if you look at verse 30, it says, this, uh, um, it says, And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. But it says here, Manasseh. And his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. That may take us out to 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came in. Do, do you see what's being said here? For the next hundreds of years... What began in the house of Micah is going to thoroughly permeate through the tribe of Dan. And not only that, it's going to set them up because later on in history, in the days of King David, uh, well, in the days of uh, Rehoboam, uh, the son of Solomon, um, Jeroboam will come and says, hey, listen, your dad had big time building projects and it was a heavy burden on us. Um, uh, if you ease up on us, we'll be glad to follow you. Rehoboam goes and speaks with the young men. They said, tell them it's going to be 10 times worse. And then he speaks to the old men and say, hey, we're going to ease up. Well, Rehoboam goes with the counsel of the young men and says to Jeroboam, uh, you know, brace yourself. It's about to get really bad. He said, you know what? We're out. You're on your own. And this is when civil war goes, begins to go on. Well, Jeroboam goes up to Dan and he erects an altar there um, and they begin to worship Yahweh, but the image that they use for Yahweh is a calf. They're worshiping a calf and calling the calf Yahweh. Prior to Jeroboam um, having the meeting with Rehoboam, he has spent years down in exile in Egypt. When Israelites came out of Egypt, they, in the wilderness, set up and began to worship a what? A calf. Did they call it by one of the Egyptian names? And they said, no, this is the God who led you out. So you can see how what's happening in Micah's house, it begins to pave the way for an entire uh, tribe and even the, all of the northern tribes get caught up in this same idolatry. But the, the pathway's already been beaten down. It made it easy for Jeroboam to come along and say, we'll just set up our own thing because that's what they had done. And, and the descendants of... of uh, uh, Jonathan, they, they were, you continue to uh, carry out their idolatrous ways. Um, so they set up for themselves Micah's carved images. They made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. So this is, this is quite sad. Now, why the name thing? Well, all right, so older trans uh, versions using older uh, manuscripts um, in ASB. New King James, King James, um, <coughs> say uh, Manasseh. But it's pretty well established that it was Moses. <coughs> and if I understand this, and I am not going to, um, uh, all they had to do was make one slight alteration to the name Moses to turn it into Manasseh. And um, so one author writes and says, Indeed, the rabbinic scribes found the present association of Moses' name was such abominable, idolatrous behavior, so objectionable, they refused to accept the statement and inserted a superscript noon between the first two consonants. So they're like, we, we just can't imagine that Moses' grandson is 
leading this kind of idolatry. And so it's believed that they changed it because it just was too much for them. But there's strong textual evidence that indeed it should be read Son of Moses, which tells you this is not in chronological order. And look how quickly, look how quickly they had fallen off and among some of the prominent people. That's why. And, and so the author writes, and it's like, this, this Levite, it's this Levite, and the Danites show up, and they're like, hey, we know you. What are you doing? We know your voice. We know exactly who you are. But we aren't told until the last moment. And, and I think the author's intent is that when you read here, um, uh, there in verse 30, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, is that all the Israelites would be like, <gasps> What? And so he kind of has been this thing. But who's this rogue Levite that's out of, the, out of Bethlehem? Oh, you want to know who he is? Danites know who he is. Do you know who he is? No, who is he? Oh, this is Moses' grandson. And so quite tragic. So that's one of the first, that's the first appendix we have here. And it just shows you um, that they want to make their own religion because it seemed right in their own eyes. They wanted to draw up their own boundaries um, to find pleasure and fulfillment and to be able to live life. <clears throat> As we move into chapters 19 through 21, it's, it's one account. And here we're going to see it seemed right to live according to their own standard of morality. These are troubling chapters to read, especially one portion of it. Um, but we, we've seen... What we're going to see in this section is a personal level re rebellion, a tribal level, and then a complete meltdown of the nation um, when it comes to morality. And so in chapter 19, we're going to read about a Levite's concubine. So again, Levites are kind of prominent in this section. It's showing you these are supposed to be the spiritual leaders, and this is what you have. <clears throat> and it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine. So he has a wife, but now he's got a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. So this is twice we've read about Bethlehem, right? Jonathan, Moses' grandson, came from Bethlehem, and now this concubine comes from Bethlehem. But his concubine played the harlot. She committed adultery against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there four whole months. Then her husband arose <coughs> and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the young man, of the young woman, saw him, he was glad to meet him. Now, what we're going to see is that dad keeps him there. An extra day, an extra two days, an extra three days. Verse 5, he keeps him there on the fourth day. And he's going to try and keep him, you know, you know, longer. And eventually the Levite says, uh, we got to go. So everybody packs their bags. And they leave from Bethlehem. And they begin to head north. And then they pass by um, the, uh, the city of Jerusalem that's still held by the Amorites, the Jebusites. And you see that in verse 10. And said, so, hey, let's stay there. He says, no, we're not going to stay there. And they continue to travel further north. And verse 13, uh, 12, then they come to the city of Gibeah. And verse 13, so he said to his servant, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And they passed by and <coughs> went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. So we've talked about the Danites. Talked about Ephraim, and we're going to talk about the Benjamites. They turned aside there to go into the lodge, in, to lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the open square. Now, just kind of allow your memory banks to go back to the account of um, Sodom and Gomorrah and when the angels came to bring judgment upon that city. They went into the open square of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. Justin, an old man, in his, uh, came in from his work in the field at evening, <clears throat> who also was from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? So he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. 
I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord, but there is no one who will take me into his house. Although we both have straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, uh, for your female servant and for the young man who was with your servant, there is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility, only do not spend the night in the open square. You can almost hear Lot, right, speaking about the two angels. You don't want to be out here. So he brought him into his house and gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house that we may know him carnally. They want to have homosexual relations with them. Um, But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly, seeing that this man came into my house. Do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out, humble them, and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. Well, you get a pretty clear indication of the value of a woman from this story, in, in other stories like in, in um, Sodom and Gomorrah. It, there's nothing in this account that um, in these chapters we're reading, I can't think of a single thing here. Maybe Phineas, we'll read uh, you know, the grandson of Phineas here. But, you know, um, yeah, I, 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 I mean Phineas. Um, I don't think there's anything in here that is like a prescriptive of how we should live. Um, it's descriptive of the fallenness of what it's like when everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And here's the truth and the reality, and history bears this out. When people follow the Lord, all people are treated well. The poor are treated well. The, um, those that um, are unable to care for themselves, the widow, women, young children, wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone, that society and the cast-offs of that society in time, they will end up being benefited and they will end up being blessed. But when everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes, watch out. Those that are the most vulnerable will be treated the worst. And you can look and find the places where uh, religion has dominated the area and it's not been the Christian religion and watch and see how people are treated. And, and so this is what you have here. Now, there's another element that's cultural I mean, obviously, this is cowardly, this is sinful, this is wrong. But, you know, to them, the ultimate... You've heard this before, that in the ancient society, hospitality was everything. Unless you're Mary and Joseph showing up in Bethlehem and you need to have the baby, then that's a different story, right? But, but outside of that, hospitality is a big deal. And to not show hospitality, well, to this man and to the Levite, it was worse. Well, the Levite, I think he's just selfish. But to this man... It is, a, it is more bearable to think about your daughter being raped than it is to think about those that are under your care with hospitality not being shown kindness. So it is what we're reading about. So eventually the Levite opens the door. He throws out the concubine. They take her. They brutalize her, these men, all night long. Um, she finds a way to f- make it back to the door and she dies at the doorstep. The Levite gets up in the morning to leave and as he's walking out the door, he sees her there. It doesn't look like he's going to search for her. He's on his way, sees her there and um, <clears throat> just, I mean, as you read this, verse 28, he said to her, get up and let us be going. Really, I mean, it's just, it's so abrupt. It is so harsh, but there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey and the man got up and went to his place. I mean, it's like, there's no... Yeah, it's just, it's a very sad story. Well, when he gets home, verse 29, when he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her out throughout all the territory of Israel. <clears throat> so it was that all who saw it said, no such deed has been done, uh, has been seen from the day the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day, Consider it, confer, and speak up. So he is wanting to rally the nation against the Benjamites, and he is successful. 
And so um, they all come together in chapter 20, um, you know, to, to deal with this. And um, <clears throat> just maybe I'll just say a word about you know, concubines. Um, when Jesus was uh, pressed about marriage, um, he says the two shall be joined together and become one flesh. The two. God's intention for marriage is very clearly seen in Genesis. A man and a woman. One man, one woman. Not a man, a woman, a concubine, and then if you're Solomon, you know, you know a thousand or so extras. Um, that's not the plan. Um, as a matter of fact, to the kings, Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17, the king was forbidden for, for multiplying wives. But the plan is laid out in Genesis, a man and a woman. When Jesus is asked about it, he says, well, listen, the plan from the beginning is this is that the two shall be joined together in one flesh. That's the plan. And when we see that plan broken, varying degrees of hardship and heartache surround those circumstances. You're like, yeah, but what about the 12 tribes of Israel? Yeah, read the story again. Wherever you see that, you'll see heartache and varying degrees of ways and trouble. And you find that as you look at Jacob and his... Um, Wives and, the, and the, the mistresses that were, he took and had children with. Yeah, this is not a happy family. A family is, is, is pulling apart at the seams because of the favoritism that, that goes on. So just in case that's something that you're, you're wondering about. Um, again, you read about Sodom and they did the same thing, except what they wanted to do is they wanted to take these two guys that we believe to be men that were angels that had come for destruction and, um, you know, Lot did the same thing. So let me, let me send out my daughters to you. And the angels were like, we don't think that's a good idea. Well, that's not going to happen. And so um, they, you know, smote the men with blindness and they groped at the door all day. Now, many will hear the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and they'll say, well, you know, here's the thing. God judged them because they failed to show hospitality, not because of the perversity. But this account makes it very clear, as does the other, that God judged them because of the, the brutality of these people. And don't take my word for it. Jude, verse 7 says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So the, the narrative you will hear is Sodom and Gomorrah was judged because they weren't hospitable. Well, that whole narrative has some problems anyway. So God smokes an entire town because they're not hospitable? I mean, he just like burns them up with, with sulfur and, you know, volcanic or whatever happened, eruption. He wipes them out because they're not good hosts? Well, that's, a, that's problematic. No, the reason he did it and we have the commentary from the Bible, was because they, they were giving themselves over to sexual immorality and went after strange flesh, and they stand as an example of the vengeance of, the, of eternal fire. God does not approve of adultery, and God does not approve of homosexuality. One man, one woman, that is God's plan. And so this is the word of the Lord. Well, in chapter 20, uh, they, they gather together. Uh, they begin to go after them. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize here um, you know, what takes place. They come together, and um, there's 400,000 Israelites that uh, join together in an army to come against Gibeah. And Benjamin, the tribe, does not join in. So this is no longer just an assault against the town of Gibeah, but it's an assault against all of the Benjamites because they um, stand with their brothers in Gibeah and um, they're willing to defend them. And so in the first battle, the Israelites go out and um, 22,000, verse 21, 22,000 of them end up falling in battle. The Benjamites have 26,700. Uh, Israelites have 400,000. And in the first battle, 22,000 Israelites fall in battle. The next day, 18,000 Israelites fall in battle. So what's going on here? I mean, this was an unrighteous. I mean, shouldn't they be judged? I, 
you know, we don't find commentary about this. So I'll let you ponder, why is it that there are so many that are dying? And you even see them at the tabernacle of the Lord, and they're, they're inquiring, and they're going up, and they're losing. They lose, you know, a significant number of people. I mean, 40,000. 40,000. Let's say half of Lynchburg died in two days. And they sought the Lord. Now they go a third time, and as they go up the third time to seek the Lord, um, it's the way they approach the Lord is a lot more, um, is, there, there's more uh, intensity about it. It seems like there's a brokenness about it as they, as they go and they seek the Lord. Um, and and you, I'm around verse 27 here. You see the children of Israel inquire to the Lord, um, the Ark of the Covenant of God, and Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. So again, you see this is time-wise, is putting us very early on, uh, not long after uh, the death of Joshua. So they should go out again, and they go out again. But um, what precedes the third battle is verse 26. Then all the children of Israel, that is, all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now they had inquired before the Lord, but they hadn't done all of this. So what, why does the Lord allow this to happen? Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And sometimes God would bring in the Philistines or the Moabites and they'd bring judgment upon the nation of Israel. Now you have a civil war and God is using the civil war to bring judgment upon everybody. And so that, that would be my take of what happened. Well, as they go out for the third battle, they are going to be victorious. They end up killing um, of an army of 26,700. They end up killing 25,100. 600 men escape and go, in verse 47, to the rock of Ramon, and they hide out there for four months. And so judgment is, is dealt with. Now, into chapter 21, uh, the Israelites are like, oh, no, what are, what's going to happen to the tribe of Benjamin? Because <laughs> they killed every man, woman, and child, um, and there's only 600 men left of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, they wiped them all out. Um, again, is that uh, prescriptive? I think it's descriptive of how they don't have leadership in the nation. They had laws on how to deal with this, but they're not following the laws of Moses, right? They're, they're not, this is not even in view. So they're making it up as they go. And so in, in chapter 21, it says, Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughters to Benjamin as a wife. Well, nobody told you to do that. But this is what happens when people are left to figure out a plan on their own, and they're not seeking the face of God. Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and said, O Lord God of Israel, why has uh, this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing <coughs> in Israel? <laughs> so it was on the next morning that the people arose early and built an altar there and offered a burnt offering and peace offerings. And the children of Israel said, Who is there? So... They're trying to find a loophole. Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with assembly to the Lord? For they had made another oath, right? Concerning anyone who would not come up uh, to the Lord at Mizpah, they shall surely be put to death. Well, they, they were like, ah, Jabesh Gilead. They didn't come. So they send 12,000 men to go kill all of them except 400 virgins. They take the 400 virgins and they send them to the 600 guys that are hiding up there at the Rock of Ramon. And, but the problem is, there's 200 that don't have a wife. And so they're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So again, on, the, on their own wisdom, they end up coming up with another terrible plan. Um, so verse 12, so they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately, and they brought them to the camp of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. And the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Ramon, and announced peace to them. So Benjamin came back at that time, and they gave them the women who they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead, and yet they had not enough for them. And well, this, again, uh, people grieve for Benjamin. They don't want to see the tribe lost. 
Um, so the, the next plan is to uh, see, let's, let's go to yeah, verse 19. Then they said, in fact, there is a yearly feast to the Lord in Shiloh. So this is like one of the, a, you know, maybe like the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And Shiloh's where the, the house of the Lord is. So you have people that are coming to worship the Lord, and they have an idea that this would be a great opportunity to kidnap 200 young girls. So it says now, Shiloh's north of Bethel on the east side of the highway, which goes up from Bethel to Shechem and the south of Labona. Therefore, they instructed the children of Benjamin, so the 200 guys that don't have wives, go lie in wait in the vineyards and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, to worship before the Lord, then come out from the vineyards and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh, then go to the land of Benjamin. Then it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain, because they were the military, right? 400,000 guys. Um, We'll make it all right. You say, hey, listen, it's okay. We didn't break our vow. They came and got them. And, and so this is the mess that the nation of, of Israel is in at this time. And so they did exactly what they said. And we'll close by looking at verses 24 and 25. So the children of Israel departed from there. At that time, every man to his own tribe and family. <clears throat> and they went out from there, every man to his own inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you read that portion of scripture and you don't know this is a description of darkness and depravity and what happens when people don't follow, you would think this is the craziest nation uh, on earth and why would God establish something like that? God did not establish something like this. So they, they rebelled. We are not free to create our own religious practices that contradict the word of God and call it the real deal. We are not free to live however we want morally. We are to be content with what God has given to us. He is our shepherd. We must guard against the influence of the world. Because again, I think you could find a lot of people today that would read these chapters and they say, what's the problem? They have a problem with the rape part, but, you know, outside of that, what's the problem with, you know, this? We must guard against that influence that's so permeates our culture and not allow it to come and to permeate us, affect us. <clears throat> and lastly, we must not respond with a foolish solution to a foolish problem, <laughs> which the Benjamin, the Israelites did on so many different levels that it just continued, where they finally got it down to the place where we're just taking young girls here and there, and we're just doing whatever we want with them. Yeah, that's what happens um, in a, a culture that does not value women back then, and they do not have the word of God to guide them and show them how to properly treat. And this is, this is where they found themselves. So I think there's some great applications for us from a really dark section of Scripture, but that, yeah, we're not free to go and mix pick and choose the verses we want. We're not free to go and live however we want and call it Christianity any more than you are able to go worship some household God and call it Yahweh. And that is rampant in our culture, within the Christian culture today. We must be on guard. You gotta be brave. You have to be brave. You have to be loving. And you gotta stand up. But don't let these things impact you and your household. You know, what a tragedy. What a mess that is in the nation of Israel. So we close here. Our next book is going to be in the same time period, in the time of the judges. Um, um, you know, so actually, that's not right. So we're, we're, we're I was thinking we're going to be into, um, yeah. So yeah, Ruth. So we'll go next into Ruth. This is the same time frame, um, judges, that time period. And so Ruth is a lot more hopeful. It's a romantic story that brings in uh, the lineage of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that there, there were some spots in the nation of Israel where they're not totally messed up. But um, read ahead. It's a great, I encourage you as you read the book of Ruth, read it in one setting and read it before you come. And just be able to allow that entire account and um, 
to just kind of settle into your hearts. Let's pray together. Worship team, you can stay where you are. Father, let's stand together. Father, we're glad that you've given us your word, your truth that leads us and guides us. And none of us have the freedom to be freelancers and make up our form of Christianity, our form of how we're going to worship you. Lord, so often we'll say, well, I just think, which sounds a lot like, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Lord, may we learn to ponder your word and walk in it and obey every aspect of it rather than pondering our own heart and will and our own fleshly desires and coming up with a solution. Lord, we pray that you would keep us walking on that straight and narrow path you've put out in front of us. We know that there are a few that find it. We are so glad that we have found it. And Lord, we pray for your grace to continue to walk on it, to be holy and obedient, set apart for you. So Lord, we commit our ways to you. We commit to following you and, um, and standing against the tide of this world where everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. But Lord, we want to do what is right in your eyes. So we commit ourselves to following you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.